Hi, everyone. Stuart Gandalf here, and it's time for another podcast again with my friend Rob Klein. And so today we're going to talk about the state of healthcare marketing research. And I find this topic fascinating because I still remember as an undergrad taking marketing research classes and kind of getting the idea of the state of the art then and watching this over the years evolve. But I'm not that close to this, honestly. This is something that we don't do a lot. Most of our clients want to get straight into marketing, and we always want to do as much marketing research as we can, but we don't get to do it as often as we like. So, Rob, my guest here, is the the preeminent market research person I know in healthcare market research, and he's giggling, but really. And I thought it'd be great to just talk to Rob and ask a sort of free-flowing conversation about what's happened to market research since 70s, 80s, 90s, and where things are headed today. Well, let me tell you, I've been in market research for 34 years now, and I have seen significant changes. Some good, some concern me over the past uh, three decades. So let me just kind of uh, frame a few of the things that maybe kind of keep me up at night, if you will. Probably the biggest uh, change I'm seeing is in telephone interviewing. When I first started in the early 80s, telephone interviewing was the gold standard. That's what most everyone did. And of course, online interviewing didn't exist yet because we didn't have online back then. Uh-huh. Telephone really was the gold standard. Today, that's not the case. The challenge with telephone interviewing is multifold, if you will. So first of all, with cell phones now, half of the, the country is cell phone only. So if we do a landline sampling, we're missing half the population, and that population tends to be younger. So what's happening is our telephone surveys are getting older and older and older. In many ways, it's almost like a senior citizen sample. We're getting people in their mid-50s uh, and, and older. Hey, hey, and that's a, and that, well, for, if you want a well-balanced sample and to get all age groups included in your sample, you're not going to get that anymore with a landline sample. So enter cell phone sampling. We initially thought that was the panacea. That was the fix because now we're getting phone numbers to cell phones. A lot of challenges with that. That did not end up correcting what we thought it would do. Number one, you have number portability. Now, if I'm a national player like Procter & Gamble and I'm doing a national sample, I don't care if we think we're calling someone in Boston and they moved to Seattle, but they kept their phone number. That's number portability. That doesn't really hurt them. But in healthcare, all of our samples are local. It could just be a few counties, maybe 10 or 15 zips. But if we think we're doing a sample in Chicago and a whole bunch of people moved to Boston and kept their Chicago area code, they don't qualify. But we we think they do. We don't know that until we get them on the phone. The other challenge with cell phone sample is they don't have to be at home. With a landline, you have to be in your home to pick it up, obviously. With a cell phone, you could be out shopping, going to a game, somewhere where you don't want to take a survey. So the response rate or cooperation rate, I should say, is very low with cell phone sample. The other thing is they want to be paid, especially if they're being charged, if they don't have an unlimited plan. So you have to often say at the end of the survey, I know Pew does this quite a bit, and other large academic research types of firms, they say, would you like us to send you $5 to pay for the minutes that we've used on this survey? So that's a big challenge, and that only increases the cost of the sample. The cell phone sample is not the correct all that we were hoping it would be for the telephone survey. It does help a little bit with age, but we find what I do in addition to cell phone sample is I also purchase listed household sample where we know the age or the approximate age of that household, and that's where I try to get the younger folks. And their refusal rates are much higher. They'll just say, no, thank you. Or they won't even answer if they can tell what the phone number is. Cooperation rates because of all the electronics, people aren't even, we're not even getting to a human nowadays 
for them to say, I don't want to take a survey. We're not even getting to them. We are electronically being thwarted. So the cooperation rate is so bad for telephone interviewing that I have converted every client I possibly can to online. That totally makes sense. And Rob, the the funny thing is I can see now where people just don't want to cooperate. They don't feel like they have to. They know their time is valuable. They know somebody's making money off this. They're not, and they don't want to. Has the national do not call registry, just briefly, is that is that an issue for you too on the phone calls or no? Yes and no. It's definitely impacting us because people will mention it. Now, what they don't realize is the law is very clear in that market research is exempted from the do not call. It's for telemarketers. But even if you tell them that, they don't care. Don't call me back. So the reason that we're exempted is because politicians love their surveys. Because of politicians doing surveys, we are exempted. That's interesting. I was wondering about that because you didn't mention that before and that's such a big deal. And it's funny, you know, I used to get out of the research calls by saying, hey, I'm in marketing. Do you really want me? And they always say no. And so I wouldn't have to do it. But now I just feel like consumers just broadly have changed. They're much more cognizant of their time. They don't want to be bothered. So it's got to be difficult. The phone surveys, which was the gold standard, it's what everybody wanted to do, has changed. And we've talked a little bit about working with some mutual clients and things that we're working on together about new technologies that have emerged on the scene. And it turns out that there's some really clear sort of best practices in marketing research. So rather than talking about what happened in the past, let's talk about what's happening now. Where is it today? We'll talk about what's going later. But right now, what is the state of the art? Well, it's several things. It's not only methodological, but it's also structural and departmental. Obviously, online surveys have become the new state of the art. And along with that, just to kind of circle back to what you were saying before, there is no free respondent anymore. They want to be paid, whether it's $120 for a focus group, whether it's $10 to take an online survey. We work with an online uh, panel company called Research Now. They have three and a half million panelists in the United States. And so we kind of rent those consumers for our surveys, depending on the market in, in which we're working. And they pay their respondents to take a survey. So the days of the free respondent, they're basically gone. So that has increased costs dramatically. And that's something that's hitting clients right in the budget. What about the days of walking around the mall with clipboards? Are those days completely gone? In healthcare, yes. But in other types of industries, whether it's cars, banking, telephones, what have you, every other industry still, there is an opportunity for having mall research, basically, if you will. In healthcare, it's not very practical and it's not used. Plus, there's so much technology now that we don't need feet on the streets or that, you know, that man on the street or the woman on the street type of research because we can do man or woman online. We can, we can do focus groups online where I can see everyone's face and they can be in different parts of the country and we're all talking and seeing each other because of the technology of webcams. Thinking through, because obviously today technology changes everything, right? We don't have clipboards, we have iPads. There's lots of options out there. How about giving our readers uh, and listeners some of the various categories of options for research? So obviously there's a million different things you can do, but maybe three, four, five categories that they said, I really need Rob for this kind of a project. What would these kinds of things be? You mentioned focus groups, there's online surveys, but give us an idea of how that works. There's a couple of new things I think are important. One shift I'm seeing departmentally is that clients are bringing more and more research in-house. They're starting an insights department, which I absolutely support. Over the past 
30 years in healthcare for me, most of my clients have been marketers. I have very few research clients. And it makes a big difference whether you have an internal researcher versus trying to translate data to a marketer who is not a researcher. And so having these internal insights department, it also allows you to be more nimble and, and quick in data collection and data interpretation. You know, today it's all about speed. We don't want to wait four to six or eight weeks to do a big market study when there's technology now to get answers almost overnight. So two things I would recommend for your listeners that are, are fairly new, but they're, they're a game changer. They don't replace doing a large strategic study, but they allow for very quick tactical questions to be answered. And that's having patient advisory groups and having an insights community. The difference is a patient advisory group is recruiting a group, a cohort, let's say of maybe 15 or 20 or 25 cancer patients, let's say, or, you know, pick, pick the cohort of a, of a, a like or homogeneous patient group. And you recruit them to have them come in for like a focus group or a dinner and maybe quarterly, maybe monthly. And then you have an internal moderator that comes from the organization and they present ideas and just let let that group of patients react. The difference between that and just a one-time focus group is those people start to get to know each other. They get to know what you're looking for. They become more expert opinion leaders, not just consumers that you caught cold and brought them into a one-time focus group. So you can present plans and ideas. I've done it a lot where a client is looking to redesign or build a brand new cancer center. So they actually had the architects come in and show these patient advisory groups their plans of where they were going to put rooms, how big, where the bathrooms were going to be. And then the patient advisory group, since they were all cancer patients, they were able to say, no, that doesn't work. Move that there. That's not big enough. You have the chairs too close together, et cetera, et cetera. Things that the architects never thought of. That literally was instant feedback. And once you develop and, and recruit these people, it's not very expensive to maintain it. Most of the time, they're happy to get a free dinner and get to know each other. Wow. These are people that, that use your organization and love your organization. So patient advisory groups, if you're not doing them, they're an absolute must do. And they're very easy to set up and to maintain. Tell us about some of the other uses for research. Because, again, it varies. We have such a broad audience. In terms of your engagement, is it for branding? Is it for, we've talked about other things like ad testing. We just talked about facility building. What are the other uses for research? And kind of some of what are the, the state-of-the-art methodologies you use for those kinds of things? The other half of that is the patient advisory group I talked about. But then also the uh, community insights group. And, and what that really is, here you're now developing and recruiting a quantitative panel of maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 patients or people from the community. And again, you're doing it, you're managing it internally, as opposed to having a research firm like myself come in and just do a one-off study, which is very expensive. So for the cost of maybe doing one study, you could put a panel together and then, again, having an internal research department, you have someone that can write the survey you literally could say, we've got an ad and we're not sure our folks are going to like it. Um, can we test it? You could literally overnight within 24 to 48 hours, send it out to that panel and say, what do you think of this? As opposed to paying someone like myself to set up a, a larger study. You know, it's not a replacement for bigger strategic research, but it allows you to get quick answers to something you're thinking of doing. So it allows the research department to be more nimble and agile and faster and more valuable. Because how often do you have a client come to you and say, I need this and I need it yesterday? Right. 
We know yesterday is the time frame most people have. So when they come to me and say that, I'm like, I, I can't do yesterday. Nobody can. But internally, you can do tomorrow. Research really becomes valuable when it gets faster. So we're really looking to get faster in our data collection. And so the new technologies, um, whether it's Google surveys, you know, Facebook is, is experimenting with uh, having sample. Uh, you know, I have some concerns about the validity of that, but still, uh, you know, I respect the fact that they're looking for ways to get in and out of the market quickly, especially if you have a, a tactical question that you only need. You, you have one very finite question to answer, and you could answer it in three or four questions on a survey. So that being more nimble and, and agile and being able to answer their questions quicker than a big study would, you know, take six to seven weeks to do. If you can answer it in 48 hours, you really are showing value. To that, that's amazing because it's funny. When we've talked before about the changing consumer mindset of we want it right now, right? And we've talked about that before. We've had some fun podcasts. But I can see now where apparently the rest of the world is catching up to my brain, <laughs> which we, the, the business side, we want it right now. We don't want to wait for a long study. Right, right. We want to jump into it. We've talked offline about a branding project we're working on and trying to wrap it up before the end of the year. And you know, at the end of the day, we want to move. The, the research is just the first step. We, it's not about the research. It's about what we're going to do next. You mentioned earlier about the future of marketing research. What concerns you? What excites you? A couple of things. The ability to get respondents. Because think about it. As a market researcher, my lifeblood is a respondent. If I don't have a respondent, I don't have data, I don't have a job. I mean, it, it is that serious. And people are being so over surveyed now, you can't go to the store without them on the sales receipt saying, they circle it and say, if you take a survey, you can enter a drawing and win this. Please rate, you know, Whole Foods or Starbucks. Every time I take my car in to get it serviced, they call me and say, how was your visit? You may be getting a survey. Is there any reason you can't give us all tents? Which that personally drives me crazy. I say, yeah, I won't because you asked me to. But the problem is companies are being so driven to get tens because their bonuses are, are based on it. We are inadvertently teaching respondents that anything less than a 10, someone's going to lose their job. They actually tell me that. I've been in my car dealer. They'll just yeah. say... Oh, they do it to me every time. Yeah. Anything less than a 10 is a failure. And so they have created what's called scale creep. And so that concerns me. I no longer use numeric scales in any of my surveys because of that fact. I've seen the research. I've done it myself. There's been a lot of research on research done around the world that's showing that scale creep is like grade creep. You know how today if a kid gets an A minus, they think they're flunking? The bell-shaped curve is gone. And that's a real problem. Not only do we have a lot of false positives, because if everybody's giving us a 10, we think they love us. No, it's just they're being polite or they've been told to. We think they love our service and they don't. That's a huge problem today. All of my scales are phrase-based, meaning there's a, there's a statement because there's less bias in a sentence on how you feel about something. Nobody goes into the store and says, eh, I'm feeling about a 9 or 10 on buying those, those Frosted Flakes. <laughs> we don't think like that in numerics. Right. We think in phrases. That's how our mind, our mind thinks. And so that's been a big change for me is getting away from numeric scales. But I don't see anybody else doing that. We're, we're using numeric scales willy-nilly, and we're not even watching that the cliff is coming. Analytically, 
If all of your scores are nines and tens, you have something called multicollinearity. You can't even do any multiple regression or any multivariate analysis because the data are so skewed, no longer can the statistics separate out which one has the biggest impact on a dependent variable. It has analytical ramifications that statistics can't unwind. So you get a bunch of garbage. That's a big challenge. To me, the, the opportunity is, especially, and I'm talking healthcare market research because that's all I do, is we need to catch up to what other industries are doing in terms of having an insights group internal so that the data can be brought in from many different sources. You know, there's a lot more to market research than just doing a survey or focus groups. There's a lot of different ways. There's secondary data. There's combining data sources together. I have clients where they do some research in one group and then another group does other research and they don't talk. So they have no idea. No, never happens in yeah, so We know silos. <laughs> data needs to be stored within one group. And whether it's advertising testing, brand tracking, patient sat, whether it's measuring your online reputation, tracking, whether it's Google Analytics, anything data related should be housed in one data analytics group. I like to call it an insights group, uh, whatever you want to call it. But it's bigger than just what we think of as market research. It's all about managing data. Any other industry you would go to, whether it's the head of research at Procter & Gamble or the head of research at Universal Studios. All data comes in through one group and then they're able to share it with everyone and they can also combine it and you learn more. One and one becomes three that way. So that's the biggest opportunity in healthcare. We need to really start combining the data into one group. That was terrific. And as always for our listeners, uh, I love this topic. It's fun for me. It's not our area of expertise. We're not marketing researchers. And so when I have a need, I call Rob and Tony, actually, to help us with the things that we're working with. If you have any questions on this, Rob is founder and CEO of Klein & Partners. And Rob, what's your contact info? My email is rob at kleinandpartners.com. That's rob at K-L-E-I-N-A-N-D. P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S dot com. And my direct line, if you want to use the old phone, is 630-455-1773. Thanks, George.